First of all, apologies for the frog. Uh, I wasn't 100% sure I'd actually have a voice to teach today, but here we are. The Lord provided a voice, and I am thankful for it, such as it is. Uh, it is a pleasure for me to get to open God's Word with you this morning. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about culture lately and how important it is, whether it is work culture or the culture of our homes, our town, our country. Culture is incredibly important in determining what type of experience we'll have in each of those spheres, whether it'll be a place of thriving or a place of depression. And the culture of church is no exception. And for that reason, I am so thankful that Jesus has told us what the culture of church should be like. And that is what we will be looking at today. I've titled this sermon, A Manual for Living in the Kingdom, Part 1. And I won't explain why for brevity's sake, but if you want to know after the sermon, you can come and ask me. We will be looking at Matthew chapters 5 and 7, which you will know as the Sermon on the Mount. And in this passage, Jesus outlines what the culture of the kingdom of God is like. He outlines how those who are part of that kingdom should act toward each other, toward outsiders, and it even goes further to outline how we should act internally. It lays waste to the thought that if your sin doesn't affect those around you, then it doesn't matter. And it holds up a splendid standard for living in the kingdom, which all those who claim to be citizens of it should work to achieve, and it gives hope. Through, that it is achievable through the strength that God supplies. So I'm excited to dive into it, and I hope you are too. I'll pray, and then we'll dive in. Lord, thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you that you have given us your word as a manual for living, that you have gone before and shown how, Lord, we should, can be a church that gives you glory, Lord, that builds each other up, that shines your light into this world, brings out the God flavors, God, so that others can see it and wonder at it and be drawn to it. God, I pray that uh, this sermon would do just that and encourage us in shining that light. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your good and gracious word. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, can be, <clears throat> uh, it is over 100 verses long, and uh, we could spend many weeks on it, giving each verse the in-depth exegesis that each of them deserve, and that would be quite profitable. Maybe we will someday, but today that's not my, my goal. I'll not be unpacking every section. Instead, I will be pulling out the macro themes and the specific applications as concerns the question that we will be asking of the text today, which is, what does Jesus say about the culture his kingdom citizens should have, the culture that Cornerstone should have? And as we ask this question, we can split the passage up into the following general outline, which we will be our outline for today. And we see that Jesus gives us in this passage a thorough explanation of the kingdom culture, 
starting with defining the goal of that culture. What is the blessed life? What is its purpose? He then outlines his authority as the fulfillment of Scripture to speak into this. And next, he dives in to explain through specific examples what the blessed life looks like in our lives. And he concludes with outlining how to enter this blessed life, how to become part of the culture. So let's dive in. Context, context, context. Where are we in the book of Matthew and in the ministry of Jesus? And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. John the Baptist has been arrested. Jesus has begun preaching a message of repentance and people are starting to notice. His ministry is building momentum largely due to the healings and the casting out of the demon-possessed that he has been doing. And this is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. What will he do with this fame and recognition that he is gaining? Here at this turning point, we see the stark contrast between what the world's way of doing things, the world's culture, and the kingdom's culture, the kingdom's way of doing things. And the kingdom's view of the blessed life is what we will look at next. Jesus saw the crowds, but his response was not to rally his disciples to build on that momentum that his healings and teaching had gained. Instead, he climbed a mountain. He made himself less accessible to the crowds. And only those willing to scale the mountain with him would have the benefit of hearing the message that he was to speak. So what application can we take from this? What shall I liken the kingdom of heaven to? It's like a treasure buried in a field. And if you want to find buried treasure, you must be willing to do the hard work of digging it up. You must be willing to climb the mountain with Jesus. He will lead the way and teach you if you climb with him. And we see that that is exactly what the disciples did in this passage. And when sufficient distance had been put between him and the growing crowds, he taught his disciples. He showed them what the kingdom of God's culture was like. And so it begins. I'll read this section, but I'll read it from the message translation because I don't know about you, but the familiarity of this passage uh, can get in the way of me really hearing it. So Matthew 5, 3 through 12. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you embrace, be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are, no more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed 
when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort, and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. For those, though they don't like it, I do. And heaven applauds. And know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. What we see here is that being a citizen of the kingdom of God means that we have very different values than the culture that we find ourselves in. Blessings are not reserved for the strongest, the most intelligent, or the most powerful, but instead for those whose focus is on the kingdom, those who have a firm understanding of where their true treasure lies and can be found, those who mourn the meek, those who hunger for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, peacemakers, the persecuted. These are a sorry lot in the world's eyes, and yet they are who Jesus calls out as blessed. And how can that be? It's because these people have had the veil lifted. They're not distracted from the myriad of things and desires that can distract us from what is truly important. And note, with all of these blessings, that they're in the context of relationships, either relationship to God or people. People are the important thing. And how we interact with and teach, eat, treat each other in the context of God as creator, savior, and Lord. Jesus goes on <clears throat> to define what kingdom citizens' purpose is in this life. You are the salt of the earth. What is the purpose of citizens in the kingdom? Especially with our lives here on earth, when we, our kingdom is a heavenly future one. What are we to be about? And we see that we're to be about proclaiming, drawing out, and witnessing to the king here in this life. And notice that these verses also tell us how to do so, and by implication, how not to. We are to be winsome, light of the world, salt of the earth. We are to draw people toward the truth, we believe. We are to bring out the God flavors in life here on earth. People should look at our lives and see a difference, a different hope a different confidence, a different purpose. And we should generously share this hope as we eagerly, unashamedly proclaim the haven that we have found in Christ. I think we can take uh, another lesson from this passage as well. And that's the lesson of care. Because nowhere in these verses do you see a hint of anger, accusation, fear, or hate. Christ is commanding us to generously open our lives and shine hope into a dark world, to season our speech, our creativity, our work, and our recreation with a deep and abiding, evident hope for the purpose that our open lives 
would prompt our fellow fallen humans to open up to God and receive the generous love that he offers. But beware, for light that does not shine and salt that does not season is good for nothing but to be thrown away. Next, Jesus goes on and speaks of him being the fulfillment, but not a replacement of revelation. And we see through this that the message Jesus is teaching is not new. He's not coming to replace what was revealed before. He's coming to fulfill it. It was promised from the garden that God would take care of the sin problem once and for all, and that is just what Jesus is doing. And we see another thing that's not new in these passages. And that's the desire for people to marginalize Scripture that they don't agree with. But a stark warning against this is given. This is key, I think, to think about and take notice of in the midst of our current cultural flux. Since invariably people will be and are tempted to turn their backs on the truth of Scripture when it becomes inconvenient to follow those truths. But we are called as kingdom citizens to be people of the book, not just the portions of the book that we like or find easy to understand, but the entire book. And a good application of this is to read your Bibles constantly and broadly. And when you come up against something that you don't understand or that rubs you the wrong way, then bring it to the Lord and bring it to your brothers and sisters, and together we can encourage each other and help one another more perfectly live out the conviction to be people of the book. The text goes on, and the section that comes up I'm calling Righteous Living for the Kingdom Citizen starts in the heart. And this is the majority of the Sermon on the Mount. In this passage, Jesus practically and thoroughly lays out how kingdom citizens are to treat each other and how they should view their inner lives in light of the principles of the kingdom. To begin with, the root of murder, which is in the heart. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Here we see how different the kingdom culture is from the culture that we're used to or is natural for us. We're naturally focused on the external. How do my actions and my words affect those around me? But we see that God is looking deeper than the outward expression of our hearts and minds. He is weighing our inward thoughts, our inward life, that none of us want another person to see. Specifically in the context of anger, he is saying that what we think in our hearts is grounds to condemn our souls. And the implications of this are drastic. We see that we're not, that in order to be righteous in the kingdom, it isn't enough for us to just act in obedience or with purity. We must have hearts that are obedient and pure. But how can we have this type of heart? Well, we can't, but Jesus is the one who changes hearts, and we'll see more on that later. Verses 23 through 26 go on, but we'll skip down to... Verse 27. And we see that the same goes as with murder, as with lust. 
And it goes on in 29 through 30. Kingdom citizens are to take sin seriously. So seriously that we should be willing to do whatever it takes to head off and escape from sin. There's lots of applications for this, but a couple. Does your computer, does being on your computer late at night cause you to stumble? Then get serious about putting barriers in the way to prevent you from being on your computer late at night. Or another more personal one. Do you find that your smartphone is a conduit for introducing hateful, sarcastic, or foolish thoughts into your lives? Then get serious about committing to purity on your devices and letting your brothers and sisters help you with accountability. You cannot do it on your own. So get the help from, that you need from the Lord and also from your brothers and sisters, knowing that the church is his body, his hands and feet for ministry here on earth. The next section is, speaks of marriage, the sacredness of marriage in the kingdom. And the thing to notice here is that the standards of the citizens of the kingdom of God are lofty and good. And just as it is wrong for a child to obey the letter of a law, but not the spirit of a law, it's wrong for citizens to get as close as they can to the limit of obedience to God's standard without a heart that sees his commands, his blessed rules and laws, ways of doing things as majestic blessings that they can follow and show us citizens how best to live this life that he's called us to. Here we see one such standard, the sanctity of marriage, an institution that God himself ordained before sin entered the world, whose purpose is to bring a man and woman together in an exclusive union that allows them to more fully express the character of God to the world than they could hope to do apart. This beautiful union is something to be cherished, nurtured, and celebrated as these two halves become one whole and join together in selfless unity as they seek to build each other up in worship of God. Through this union, marriage is far more beautiful than the sham which our culture has relegated it to. And as we see through this verse, Jesus was speaking into a culture that was no different than our, our, than our own in not valuing or in failing to value and fulfill God's design for marriage. But as kingdom citizens, we are called to a higher standard, and it is our joy and privilege to attain to this standard. Kingdom citizens wait on the Lord. We won't unpack this one, but they do. Next, kingdom citizens respond with generosity always. The next several points have great synergy with each other. Kingdom citizens see that their treasures and ultimate hope is not in this life, but in the next. More than this, kingdom citizens also know that their biggest problem, the problem of their sin, has already been dealt with. And this gives us an entirely different perspective on insisting our own rights or seeking vengeance here on earth. Since they, kingdom citizens, are free to respond in grace as they seek to follow the example of their king who died for them. But not only them, also those who have wronged them, knowing that their king sees and will reward them. 
And the next is similar. The confidence that kingdom citizens have in a future inheritance results in strange behavior by the world standard. But when you are confident in your heavenly inheritance and know the type of God you follow, a God who would die for his subjects to give them blessings, and even gives blessings to those that are in rebellion to him, then you will be free to exercise love for those who the world would assume that you would hate. Knowing these kingdom truths allows you to have compassion on your fellow humans since they too, since you too once walked in the same darkness. We are to be salt and light. We are called to share the blessed news with even these our enemies. Next section talks about kingdom citizens not seeking man's approval, but instead God's in several areas. First, in giving. But why do kingdom citizens not seek approval of man? It's because they have already received approval from God. And approval from man would not be worth anything in comparison to that. No glory or fame that they could get at the hands of man here on earth compares in the least with the approval that they have from their God. Thus, kingdom citizens are free to work for the kingdom without fanfare and in simple trust that God will reward them at the proper time. Trust, that is what they, kingdom citizens, are blessed with since their God is a trustworthy God. And the application comes next. So give generously without drawing attention to yourself. Your goal is to draw attention to God. And prayer is similar. <clears throat> pray honestly and simply. The point is to ask for God's favor and to praise him, not to show off to other humans. Jesus goes on to give us a model of prayer for his kingdom citizens. Salt and light are what we are to be. These, salt and light, are humble but invaluable. And similarly, our prayers are to be humble and they are invaluable because through them we commune with the Almighty. But how could we commune with such a being as the Almighty while holding something back such as forgiveness? That's simply hypocrisy since we are all in the same boat. How silly would it be to hold back forgiveness when the Lord we worship has already generously offered forgiveness both to us and to others. Jesus talks about fasting next, and there's more to say here, but we'll skip down to verse 19, which is where we see that kingdom citizens serve and trust their Father. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. This only makes sense, doesn't it? But notice that the reason it makes sense is because our hope is not in this life, but the next. And there are two things I'd like to point out here. First, it doesn't make sense for our unbelieving neighbors. <clears throat> to not lay up for themselves treasures here on earth. Instead, it makes much more sense to strive to grab 
whatever it is that they can for their own personal happiness here, regardless of what that costs those around them. For those who are not in the kingdom citizens, it only makes sense to grab what you can. But if there's something more after death, as we believe, then the game changes completely. Because when we believe Christ's promises, we understand that the constant striving of life is less than worthless in comparison with the incredible bounty of joy that we will get as we see our Savior face to face. And that realization, that understanding, will allow you to see this life, your work, your toil, in a completely new light. A light that shines from Christ's throne through you to bring out the God flavors in life and allows you to bask in the glory that comes from his throne without the constant angst of trying to prove yourself being successful in whatever it is that you're drawn to. And this isn't laziness, it's fullness. And this fullness comes from Christ. Verses 22 through 24 go on, but we'll skip to 25. With the backdrop of our treasures and hope being secure in heaven, we're free to live life in blissful expectation that God will provide for our needs in a manner that is best for us and also for furthering his purpose in our lives. Does that mean that you will be rich and successful? Yes. But those riches and that success will certainly not look like what the world sees as riches and success. Why? Remember where we started. That the blessed in the kingdom of God are those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted. As we let the Lord replace and augment our natural desires within us with heavenly ones, then we will find that we will receive the desires of our heart. But it won't be a new car or a great vacation, large bank account or a powerful job, because our desires will be for him and his will being done in our lives. He goes on in verse 6, 27 through 30. Think about it. God is intimately aware of every blade of grass, every pine needle in existence now that has existed or that will exist. He knows personally every cell that makes up every blade of grass and every human hair. And he is personally acquainted with every atom that he created in this universe. He knows by heart the rhythmic and unceasing atomic dance of forces that hold those atoms together, which hold molecules together, which are assembled into cells, which assemble into tissue and organs, which assemble into bodies, which he has made in his image in a mystery that only he fully understands. This is the God who not only made us, but loves us so much that he entered our reality as one of us for the purpose of dying so that we may have life in him. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear? Do not be anxious about tomorrow, 
for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Would this God, this infinite being who knows all the physical world and also every thought that has been, is being, or ever will be, not also know what we need to fulfill his purposes for us? And since he sees all and loves us, can't we trust him to provide for us as we ought to be provided for instead of how we wish to be provided for? There's a great truth here that if you understand, will give you great rest. Kingdom citizens understand that they are not the best determiners of what is good for them. God is. Kingdom citizens trust him to make those decisions instead of themselves and are committed to following him. And where do we find the direction that he gives? In his manual for living, the Bible, be people of the book. Next section, kingdom citizens look first to their own hearts. This is another spot where our culture, the culture of the kingdom of God, <clears throat> differs starkly from the culture around us. Judge not that you be not judged. The culture around us loves to judge without holding themselves account to account. More than that, fallen human nature can't help but look at the world through an us-versus-them lens. But as soon as that happens, we've stepped away from our calling to be the light of the world and have forgotten that we too, once, were all alienated from God like the rest of mankind. Seeing people as others eventually leads to things like the Holocaust and genocides. But of course, we would never be like that, right? We would never be so evil to another person. Remember that in the kingdom, anger and hatred in the heart are on the same level as murder. Thus, watch your heart carefully to ensure your thoughts about others are based on love and out of a king's sense of your imperfect state before a perfect savior. Let that truth inform how you go about speaking into the lives of those around you. Verse 6 goes on. <clears throat> we'll jump to verse 7. Kingdom citizens submit their hearts' needs to the Lord. If we believe that as kingdom citizens, we have a king who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and one who loves us, does it not make sense that he is able and willing to give us the things that we need in order to live well as his citizens in his kingdom? Of course it does. But we are here on earth to glorify God and to enjoy him and to point toward people towards him. So he expects us to ask, to bring our requests before him so that we can experience the gratitude that stems from seeing those requests fulfilled, giving glory to God for answering them. Mind-blowingly, our Lord not only bought us through his blood, adopted us into his kingdom, and gave us promises in heaven that we can look forward to when we join him in his holy habitation. He also determined that his best glory and our best good would be accomplished 
by entrusting the ministering of the gospel and also the care for his people to us as his hands and feet. And the simple rule of thumb for our doing so is ask yourself, what you want people to do for you and grab the initiative and do it for them. This is the law and the prophets. That concludes the righteous living for the kingdom of citizens starts in the heart section of our outline. We have two more brief sections before the end of Jesus' first discourse in Matthew. Jesus tells, what is the path to become a kingdom citizen? Enter by the narrow gate. Elsewhere we see that Jesus is the narrow gate through his death and resurrection on our behalf. The world will and does tempt us with many other things, which it says will save us and fill the Christ-shaped hole in our hearts. But the world lies and our hearts lie. The only path to true and lasting happiness is the path that leads to the cross. And when we enter through the narrow path into King Christ's kingdom, we receive treasures immeasurable. But when we follow the world's and sin's broad path, we receive sorrows and pain immeasurable. The text goes on in 15 to 23, and there's a lot, but we will skip down to 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Let us be the wise man who hears these words and works them into every corner of their lives. Let us not be content to simply hear them, be encouraged by them, and go and pursue our life when we leave this place. Instead, let us dive deep and work them into every corner of our lives. Let us not come to the point where we think that we're good enough, because when we do so, we've opened the door to blindness and begin to lose our saltiness. Let us look at each quadrant of this wheel and praise the Lord for the areas that he has grown us and also prayerfully seek where we still have work to do, where the foundations need to be shored up and how we can grow together as citizens of his kingdom. And when Jesus finished these sayings, The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. We began by asking of this text, what does Jesus say about the kingdom culture and what his citizens, how his citizens should act in it, the culture that Cornerstone should have? And this is what we've seen. Kingdom citizens are to be about shining the light of Christ into this world, to bring out the God colors, which have been put there to point people back to the true Lord of creation and of their lives. We're to be about the work of shining that light into all areas of our lives. So let us clear out all barriers to... That may, be putting, that may be in the way of Christ taking his rightful place as Lord of our hearts. And let us ruthlessly dethrone anything in our lives that has claimed a place 
<clears throat> where Christ should be and humbly seek forgiveness from Christ for allowing there to be any competition and submit to the direction that he leads us. When we do, we will find ourselves truly blessed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have shown us the type of kingdom, the type of culture that your kingdom has, Lord. Thank you that we, Little Cornerstone Church, get to be part of this kingdom, this culture. God, I pray that your word would produce a desire uh, in us to commit our lives to you and following that culture, and that you would give us opportunity, Lord, to speak the truths of your forgiveness into our community, into the lives of our friends and our family, and that by seeing the wonderful trust that we have in you, you would be glorified, Lord, and they would wonder and ask the question, why? And then we would have the opportunity to say, why? Lord, I pray these things in your name. Amen.